Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the LA area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. As you get back to your seats, take out your Bibles, your swords, dust them off, sharpen them up, get ready. As we approach the final couple of chapters here in the book of Daniel, we get to one of the pieces of the puzzle of the book of Daniel that caused such a great stir amongst Bible expositors and teachers and scholars uh, that it really kind of divided the church for a very, very, very long time until 1948, and we found copies of the book of Daniel and the Dead Sea Scrolls, which kind of solved that dilemma for everyone. Because there was a period of time in the church's history where these last couple of chapters of the book of Daniel were considered to be so accurate that they could not possibly come from antiquity. They would have had to have been written after the fact. In other words, the events occurred, and this is merely a recordation of the history of a period of time. Uh, And because they were deemed to be after the fact, it it straightened out uh, this timeline in Daniel's narrative to a very short window of time that followed after one of the Greek rulers, Antiochus Epiphanes. And so it was believed that the book of Daniel was much, much newer than it actually was. Uh, until the Dead Sea Scrolls, until we ended up with a copy that was uh, dated to 212 BC. And so we know that the copy that we have that exists today was actually dated to a time that was prior to the death of Antiochus Epiphanes in BC 163. And so we know historically that these words were written before the events contained within them actually occurred. One of the things that we have before us is a history of what would happen in the world, specifically in the Greek world, with such detail that it correctly identifies the kings, it correctly identifies the kingdoms that would follow after both media, Persia, and Greece. We've already seen part of that. Now we get part of what is going to happen in the near future for the Jewish people, once they come out of captivity in Babylon, and also it looks forward to a time that is still yet future. So from Daniel's perspective, when these things were written, every bit of this was still future. For us tonight, a part of it remains future as we finish up the book of Daniel. And part of it is a history of two empires. And it is that part that we'll look at tonight, verses one through 20. Uh, These two empires will follow this up with a study that's entitled Two Princes, which will take us through the time of Antiochus IV, the Antiochus Epiphanes, and then the Antichrist, and then we'll follow it up with this crisis that happens during the middle of the tribulation that Jesus calls the abomination of desolation, and then finally the deliverance of the Jewish people uh, through what we call the tribulation, because God does have a plan Uh, to redeem national Israel. And that plan begins to unfold here in the remainder of the rest of the book of Daniel. And so before we dig in, let's pray. And then we'll handle a little bit of an introduction and then we'll pick up in verse one. Father, thank you. Thank you for these identifying factors, these things that authenticate that the words in your word are true. Lord, that the things that were recorded As the Holy Spirit spoke to Daniel, and as he wrote these things down, either himself or through a scribe attributed to him, were in fact written before the events described in them ever occurred. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, because there's only one place that information could have come from, and it's from heaven. It wasn't from man. These are not the words of Daniel in that sense. They are your words. You gave them to Daniel, and they are accurate. And so we pray that you'd speak to us tonight. Bless us as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to focus you back on verse 
14 of chapter 9, because it says there, I'm about to explain, this is this vision of the man, what will happen to your people in the future, for this vision concerns a time that has not yet come. That is still the context of the remainder of the book of Daniel, and so this is still speaking of future events. Uh, We know that this man identified that speaking to Daniel, uh, the clearest way for us to understand is this this is a pre-incarnate, in other words, before Jesus actually came and was born in a manger, before he was born on this earth, before God's son came and dwelt among us. This would be what we would call a Christophany, or in other words, an Old Testament appearance uh, of the Lord Jesus himself. And, And he is describing this great conflict that has been going on Now, since the fall of Satan, since this division that occurred in the heavens, since Satan fell, he takes a third of the stars of heaven or the host of heaven with him. And this thing that we call the spiritual warfare uh, begins to unfold in our world. Prior to that time, there were the angels in heaven and God. God then creates the, the heavens and the earth as we know them, populates them with mankind, And mankind no more than sins, and we have the first appearance of the serpent in the garden. Amen? And so the serpent in the garden uh, then begins to need some help as mankind grows. Um, Satan then inquires of his minions to aid him in the battle. And so as angels and demons then join in that conflict, we have this giant thing called spiritual war. uh, And as we look at it, sometimes we think, now with everything that's going on in the world, is God actually still in control? Pastor Rob and I were talking about some of the things for National Day of Prayer this, this year, and we're just sitting there looking at the things that are you know, absolutely bombarding the minds, especially of our young people, that, that we have an opioid epidemic in a westernized country that hasn't seen opium fields grown here ever, and yet we somehow managed to manufacture things like oxycodone and fentanyl, and and those are now available to children. We we have the worst type of pornography imaginable available on cell phones. We have things that in Daniel's time, no one could have possibly imagined would be the things that our world would struggle with. But God was not taken aback by anything that's occurred in the world's history. Uh, he, he wasn't taken aback by the facts that the Greeks managed to raise up uh, a ruler like Alexander the Great, who then conquers most of what we would call the inhabited world at the time. Uh, he was certainly not taken aback by the, the fifth great Khan, Kublai Khan, who takes a, a landmass that's the largest landmass that's ever been taken by a single ruler, which stretched all the way from modern-day Turkey to China. That, that, didn't, that didn't boggle God's mind. It's like, oh, no, what do I do? Kublai Khan has come on the scene. You know, he's just too great for me. So there's always been rulers, and there have always been good ones, and there's always been bad ones. And so God is going to give us a bit of a history lesson And so some of that history is going to be, at least now in our time, the history of the ancient world or fulfilled prophecy. In Daniel's time, it was the near future to him. But in our day and time, this is the history of the ancient world, about 2,500 years ago. But we're also going to see there are things here that have not yet taken place, and they are still prophetic glimpses into the future that are still awaiting mankind. And the reason that I think these things are so important, or you might even say to yourself, well, why the focus on prophecy, is that as you look at this book, as it's broken down, especially here in chapter 11, you have the first 69 of Daniel 7s are revealed in verses 1 through 35. So this period of time that's been described to us uh, that appears to be the entire history, if you will, uh, of, of the age of grace up to and including the time that you'll see the rise of the Antichrist. And then from, chapter, from verse 36 to verse 45, it's actually going to cover the events that Daniel talked about in chapter 9, there in verses 24 to 27, is that final week, that 70th seven 
that time that we call the time of Jacob's trouble or the tribulation of days. Ultimately, the tribulation is broken into two parts, the tribulation itself, and then the final three and a half years, the great tribulation. And so Daniel is going to give us a glimpse into that period of time, the tribulation, which to us is still future. And the reason we know it's future is because we have the book of Revelation. Daniel did not have it, but we do. And so when we begin to read what will happen during that time, we know all of these things that are going to occur in Revelation chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19, which describe these trumpet judgments and bowl judgments, these scrolls that are unopened, these things that will come upon mankind. And when you read them, you're, you're talking about levels of destruction and magnitudes that the world has never seen. And so we know that these things could not have possibly yet occurred because of the scope with which we now know that final week is going to take. It's going to be global. It's not going to be regional. It's not going to be something like Greece or something like Rome. It's going to be literally the entire world that ultimately is going to be punished, according to the book of Joel, for what we have done to Israel, to God's land, which God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and principally for the scattering of the Jewish people to the four corners of the globe. And so that has yet to occur. The world has not been punished for that. And so when we look at this, we know that some of these things are still yet future to us tonight. But in Daniel's case, all of this was future. And it's really important to recognize that in the time that Daniel received this vision. Every last bit of what is included here in this vision was future in Daniel's time. So why does this even matter? What's the reason that we should even care about it? And I think the most glaring reason for all of it, the, the biggest thing that we can draw from it, is if God can tell us with 100% accuracy the kings and kingdoms, the things that will happen before they happen, then this book identifies itself as having its origins outside of what we would call space and time. Space, time, matter, continuum, the place that we live currently we live in this, this reality that is made up of these, these three component parts. This information doesn't exist within space, time, our basic reality that we live in. This had to come from outside of it because it existed beyond it before we ever got to it. And so because it's 100% accurate and because there are at least 135 pieces of information contained in these very short 35 verses, and that's individual things that when you look at them, they become so massively complete. It was the reason that there was a debate whether this was written after the fact. It's why the book of Daniel got dated to much later than it actually was and was not attributed to the time of the captivity when Daniel was in Babylon and ultimately under the reigns of several rulers Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and, and Cyrus the Mede or the Persian. And so this type of work or this structure that's written here uh, authenticates God's word for us as being from him. Man couldn't come up with this stuff. Maybe man would have gotten two or three things right by guessing. Let's put it that way. But for those of you that are interested in such things, the laws of mathematics, specifically the laws of probability, when you start putting things together, they end up multiplying one on top of another. So if you take one thing and you give it a prob probability, the chances of it happening are one out of one or zero out of one. But if you take two things, then they multiply. So now you have two. If you take one more, it's two times the one and, and so on and so forth. And ultimately, these things multiply out to where they become hundreds of trillions of orders of magnitude of chance that these things could happen randomly or that someone could guess them. Because it's not just one event. If you're gonna name one Persian king or if you're going to name a certain number of rulers that have not yet come into existence, the moment you start getting one right and then you get two right and you get three right and you get four right and you talk about multiple kingdoms, you start talking about things that are absolutely impossible for anyone to guess. 
I'm put it to you like this. Most of you know that for the most part, uh, our country came into existence when some people that we call pilgrims uh, landed in a, in a region somewhere near where we call Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts. Imagine that you would name uh, the group of people, you would name the ship the Mayflower, and you would name the people that were on it. Maybe you got you know John Bradford's name right or something like that. But you are not going to get the foundation of the, the first town of Jamestown. You certainly wouldn't get uh, the type of buildings that were uh, arranged in that particular settlement. You wouldn't get any of that information. And so those are lots of pieces of information. If you put them together, somebody would say, man, you had to know that beforehand. If you can prove that it wasn't written after the fact, which we now can, and you can prove that it's 100% accurate, which we now can, then you know it came from somewhere else. And it authenticates the fact that it came from the hand of God. Demonstrates that the God of heaven cares about us because he has to have a reason for giving us this information. This isn't arbitrary on God's part. He didn't do this just to show off, kind of so to speak. It also validates the reason for which he gave this, which is there is a coming Messiah. That's the whole point. God is holding out this, this reason for hope. And so this promised one that's going to come that Daniel talks about, this one who will be cut off, not for himself, that's the king of kings, that's the Lord of lords. He's telling us in advance, I'm sending help. I've got a plan. Uh, my intent is to not let this go uh, beyond what, what we, could, we could say is, uh, is a tolerable situation for humanity. Because if mankind had been allowed to go exactly as it wanted to go, we'd already wiped ourselves out. There, there is no doubt that God's restraining hand by the Holy Spirit has kept us from killing ourselves off already. And then the fourth thing, and this is for us tonight, it strengthens us. We who know the Lord, who love the Lord, when we read these things, we're encouraged, we're strengthened in our faith. It's like God gave us this information so that we could know he knows and that he's got this. It is in essence that truth that's told to us in advance that becomes that shining light that Peter talked about uh, there in 2 Peter chapter 1 in a dark place or a dark world. And so even critics liberal critics who look at this have to ask themselves some very, very difficult questions. If we have a copy of it that's older than, than the ruler that we thought that was being identified here, which is Antiochus Epiphanes, if that ruler died in BC 163, and we have a copy of this that is dated to 212, we have a massive problem. That means that every bit of this was written before the events that are described. And so they have to ask themselves the question. There are scholars going, I don't know what to do with this. Because I always thought this was Antiochus Epiphanes. I always thought it was this little sliver, this little narrow end, if you will, of Greek history. And so they are forced to come to terms with what Paul wrote to Timothy. They're in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, for all scripture is God-breathed. It didn't come from man in the first place. And so Daniel gives us these pieces of information. I'm going to give you some history tonight, and I'll just tell you in advance. I'm condensing this stuff down for the sake of time because I don't think most of you came for a history class, but you are going to get one nonetheless. And so I'll tell you in advance, if you want some great books, read the Iliad by Homer. Uh, read the histories by Herodotus, uh, Media by Euripides, The Greek Fire by Oliver Tapin. Uh, there are all kinds of books where you can go and validate the things that I'm going to share with you tonight. So I'm saving you the trouble of reading through thousands of pages of Greek history uh, principally and condensing it down to these rulers that are clearly identified uh, in this particular passage of Scripture. And we're going to begin uh, with what we would call the history or empire number one, the first of these empires. You'll see it there in verses one through four of the one that was still around when these words were finished, and that is Media Persia. So verse one here in 
Uh, Daniel chapter 11, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up. That's the man. That's the one who's been speaking to Daniel all along and to confirm and to strengthen him. And so again, Daniel's being strengthened by the Lord to receive these things. And now I will tell you the truth. And so this is coming from outside of Daniel's heart and mind. It's being given to Daniel, but there's a physical strengthening of Daniel that's occurring. And this is from directly, I believe, from the Lord. And now I'm going to tell you the truth. And it's interesting the way this is phrased. I'm going to tell you what is going to happen before it happens is the inference here. I'm going to give you history in advance, Daniel. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. Now that's super specific because he's already under the rule of one king. That's Darius the Mede. And so if there are more than three kings followed by a fourth, which is what it says next, then we have a problem with this historical account. The three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up against all of them, the realm, all of the realm of Greece. And so Media Persia, which is who's being described here, Darius the Mede, will rise up against Greece. We're told exactly who these kingdoms are. And by the way, Greece doesn't actually exist yet as Daniel writes these words. And so they're there, but they are hardly a kingdom, and they're certainly not the power that they will become. And then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, And again, this is all being foretold in advance and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided towards the four winds of heaven. In other words, there will be four component parts to this ruler's kingdom that will rise up after the four successive kings of the media Persian empire. And those, that particular group of kings, which will be attached to Greece or rulers that will be attached to Greece, will be given four locations to rule from, which are assigned to the four ordinal directions of the compass, north, south, east, and west, the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity. And so this is not going to be actually the offspring of whoever this Greek ruler is but going to be part of his kingdom, nor according to his dominion. In other words, he's not going to rule by default. These these will not simply be rulers who do the work of this great ruler. They will literally rule in their own stead. They'll come out of whoever this Greek ruler's uh, dominion is, with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted. In other words, whoever this great king is, he is going to actually disappear from the scene. He's no longer going to be a force or even the, for even others besides these. And so this first empire is told to us that it's Media Persia, so we know exactly who it is. In verse 1, interesting, the Lord who's speaking here, the man, even I, uh, reveals that he supports and protects Darius the Mede there, and that occurs because we know when this happened. We have tremendous historical records in 539 B.C. So in 539 B.C., Darius the Mede is ruling that region of the world. Uh, There's a rapid, there's a smooth transfer that goes from Babylon to Persia. This is God's doing. It it was basically almost a a less than hostile takeover. Uh, Yes, there were some skirmishes and battles, but it was not just Cyrus's great skill as a commander. Basically, God installs the Persian Empire. says, they're ruling. That's, That's what's going to happen. In the second verse, I want you to notice this because it says something very specific. And now I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen. Behold, there will be three more kings that arise in Persia. We know those kings' names. That that would be King Shambesis, King Pseudosmyrtus, Darius Hippostasis, and finally Xerxes. And the reason that we know these kings, again, is because the Persians were meticulous record keepers. And so as you read through the historical accounts of that time, you can find exactly how many rulers there were in Persia after Darius the Mede. And and so as they rule, as we get to our Bible, we get some additional information that also confirms this because we have the book of Esther. 
And we have the book of Ruth, but specifically uh, the, the book of Esther records King Xerxes and it records something very unique about him, which when you read your Bible, seems like it doesn't really make that much sense. Why would that be in there? But recording and recorded of King Xerxes is exactly what it says here in Daniel, that he was of great, tremendous wealth. And his riches were so great that they were the attraction that would draw Greece into that region. It was like, this guy is so wealthy that we need to take that wealth and use it because our war machine uh, continues to grow. And so in the opening chapters of the book of Esther, we see King Xerxes is fabulous. He holds his great banquet. Um, It's a pretext, and the reason being is it's going to stir up the ire uh, of Greece itself. And so these things are not even contestable. You can simply read the... Uh, histories by Herodotus and go through each one of these kings and kingdoms and what they did. Interesting, more, in, interestingly, Mordecai, there the story in Esther chapter three, says to his niece when the genocide of the Jews was decreed, and who knows but what you, you shall have come into, how did you come into such a royal position at this time? It's like, like what is that? Why, why are you included in this mix? Well, what was the whole point that Daniel's trying to get? That there was one that's going to come through that line who would be cut off, but not for himself, but for the prince of him who is to come. And so this is preserving the lineage of Jesus through these stories. And so God knows exactly what he's doing as he uh, continues to put forth this this set of rulers in verses three through four, we see the next little phase of this. And there are some other major events that are skipped over, but we skip over essentially about 150 years of history and we come to Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, this, this man who with lightning speed conquers what we would call Eurasia, moves through all of the Middle East, all the way over to India, Uh, If you may remember, I showed you a map of what his empire looked like. And he literally did exactly as it says here, as he pleased. Whatever he wanted to do, that's what he did. Nobody stops him. The interesting thing, when Alexander the Great first attacked Persia, and as you read the the histories of these wars, various Persian kings and, and and this, the Spartans kind of gathered together. Uh, if you ever saw the Sparta or the 300, uh, either of those is talking about the Battle of Thermopylae. And if you remember, the Greeks were always outnumbered. It was like they, they had hundreds and the Persians had thousands or tens of thousands. And that's the story of the history. And so it makes no sense that Alexander the Great would come into the throne of of Greece and Macedonia. At the time when he took over the Greek empire, they had about 35,000 soldiers. At that time, as far as the Persian empire was concerned, they had hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And so there never should have been uh, the rise of Alexander the Great. But your Bible says that there would be a Greek king who would come on the scene, who would rise with rapid expansion and leapfrog throughout that region. And ultimately, he would leave his rule. He would die at a young age. He actually died at 32 years of age. And as he dies, he doesn't leave any progeny. He has no kids. There's nobody to turn it over to. So who does he turn it over to? Exactly what your Bible says, people who are not related to him. And exactly what your Bible says, four of them, and exactly what your Bible says in four corners or four areas. Specifically, he left it to Ptolemy in Egypt, to Antigonus in Babylon, and North Syria, and Lysimachus in Thrace and Bithynia, and Cassander in Macedonia. So you have a group that's in the east, you have a group that's in the west, you have a group that's in the north, and you have a group that's in the south. Where did the four winds come from? Those four ordinal directions. When you say the four winds, people automatically think north, south, east, west. That's where the winds come from, originate from, or blow to either one. So naturally, this Greek empire is divided. The result of that is diminished power, but it does not diminish its influence on society. And so if you travel throughout all of that region, still to this day, 
One thing that you will see consistently is the Greek influence on culture throughout all of the region that we would call the Middle East, which would include all of Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Jordan, certainly Israel. You can go to the Temple of Pan today. I showed you a picture of that. You can actually walk into a Greek worship area in a Hebrew-speaking country uh, where there is still an influence that the Greeks inhabited that area, which would be followed by the Romans, which would be followed ultimate, ultimately by the British until 1917 or so. And so we have the history of this land. The Greeks absolutely were the second empire. And exactly as this says, this region was left uh, to these four uh, particular generals uh, that were not his descendants. And so the second empire, uh, which comes out of Greece and is in two locations that are called now the king of the south and the king of the north. Notice verse five. And also the king of the south should become strong. That would be Ptolemy or Ptolemy, if you pronounce it without the P. Some people pronounce it with, some without. And I have yet to get a straight answer even from scholars. And so we'll just call it Ptolemy. And so the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion, and his dominion shall be a great dominion. At the end of some years, they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority, nor shall he his authority shall it stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. And so there's some very specific information there about somebody, somebody who's going to be a female and who's also going to be a ruler in her own stead. And she's going to be related to one of these kings, but she's going to be somehow removed from that relationship with that king, and that power is going to be transferred by some other means. And so we can look again to history and find out if this is true. And the reason, again, that this is important is because it's being so very, very, very specific. And so these prove to be two of the most significant divisions in the Greek empire. And, and while you look at this, and we, we can look at it again because we have the, the history now to look back on, um, but Daniel did not. So remember, he's being told these things. So when they came, people would go, you know what, Daniel wrote that this is how this land would be divided up. Daniel wrote about Alexander the Great, this great king that would uh, take over all of the Middle East in effect. And, and so they would be able to say, okay, if he was right about that, and he talked about these weeks, and we can see that 69 of these sevens have occurred, and one of these sevens yet still seemingly has not been fulfilled, and if all the rest of this is true, then what about this final seven? It must also be true. And so the rest of the rulers, and I'm going to, for sake of time, remind you uh, that we have our own app at ccsouthbay.org forward slash now. And so you can download these. I apologize because when we copied this, it actually somehow kind of turned it into some funky font and it would not return to its original nice uh, font that we had, which is like the one at the bottom. So you're just gonna have to live with this, but it is actually legible. Uh, so we'll kind of go through these in a fairly quick fashion because every last one of these rulers in some way, shape, or form is described in what remains in these, these next 15 verses or so. <clears throat> Verse five, and also the king of the south shall become strong as well as one of his princes. And he'll gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be great. Uh, and so the, these two rulers, the kings, and we're gonna call them just for sake uh, of, of being able to describe where they are, the king of the south, the king of the north. There are two kingdoms. So in the north, uh, you have the Seleucids. Those are the rulers of the area that we would call primarily Syria uh, and, and to the north of modern-day Israel. And to the south, you would have the Ptolemies, which would be modern-day Egypt and the area principally of Saudi Arabia as well. 
And so you have two regions. They're both Greek. They're both ruled by two of these generals. Uh, and, and so they have a series of rulers that are listed here on this table before you. And the verses that you see next to them are where they're described uh, here in this particular text. So in verse five, you have um, Seleucus Nictator and, and so on and so forth. And I've given you the dates for them. So if you are so interested, you can go and research these things for yourself and you can read the whole rest of the history and find out all about the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. But safe to say, the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemy Empire uh, in, in these two regions is very, very, very well, do- very well documented. So Seleucus Nictator uh, builds the Seleucid Empire in the north and he reaches all the way to from Phrygia, which is basically the peninsula part of Turkey. So if you know where Istanbul and the Basra Straits are from that region all the way to India. And so this is a huge region. Now, why, why would this be such, a, such an issue when you change from he to she here? Because number one, they didn't have female rulers in the Greek empire as a general rule. There were ladies that were important But here in verse six, notice what it says. It says, at the end of some years, they shall join forces, these two, the north and the south, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of her authority. So what happened? Well, here's what happened. Berenice, the daughter of Ptolemy Philadelphus, who's the king of the south, uh, married Antiochus II, who ruled uh, from the north, Um, This is a political marriage. And so what's being described here is a political marriage between a king of the north and a king of the south, and it lists what's going to happen in this political marriage. Two years after their union, Ptolemy dies. After his death, Laodicea, a powerful and influential woman uh, that poisons Antiochus II, managed to have his former wife, Bernice, the couple's and their couple's infant son, assassinated. She takes over. She's the ruler that's described in this passage who ends up with the power after she bumps off the ruler. So you have some very intimate details about a family line and what's going to happen. Not only that they would be joined together, but there would actually be problems within their relationship that would result in somehow this queen, in essence, uh, coming to power, and that is exactly what happened. So literally out of that branch, uh, it's actually called uh, the nester uh, here, or her roots, the parents. Bernice's brother becomes Ptolemy Energetus III. Uh, he becomes the king of the south and so on. So she ends up affecting the, the rest of the line of the Ptolemies. But from the branch of her roots, verse seven, one shall rise in his place, who shall come along with an army and enter into the fortress of the king of the north and deal with them and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes, with their precious articles of silver and gold. And he shall continue for more years than the king of the north. And so now we have some additional information that the king of the south is going to outlive the king of the north. We're told that there's going to be rulers that will be related to Berenice. Um, This is exactly what happened, verses 9 and 10. And also the king of the north shall come uh, to the kingdom of the south, but he'll return to his own land. And however, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a great multitude of forces. And you can see exactly why I said there's 135 to 138, depending on how you divide up a couple of words here, uh, pieces of very specific information about people, places, and things that occurred during a period of history that's going to last for more than 500 years, uh, that's going to encapsulate the history of the Greek people Uh, in essence, of their first and greatest ruler that we know of, which is Alexander the Great, his four generals that would then divide up his particular rule and his kingdom, and then the remnant of that that would be the leftovers that would be the part that the whole world would ultimately know because they would be known as the Seleucids and, and the Ptolemies. And so the king of the north shall come to the king with his own sons and stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, and he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. So King Seleucus Calacanus uh, invades Egypt. He's unsuccessful. He returns home. His fleet perishes in a storm. And, and, and as you look at the history of this region, 
you can see these very minute details in the historical record. Verses 11 and 12, the king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him and the king of the north. So again, this is still the Ptolemies. This is still the Seleucids. This is still that empire. King of the north, king of the south, shall muster a great multitude, but that multitude shall be given into his hand of his enemy. And when he's taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up and he'll be cast down uh, and tens of th- by tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. So now we have Ptolemy, a Philippator, who raises up this large army of some 73,000 soldiers. He has 5,000 mounted cavalry units. He has 73 element- elephants. So Herodotus starts writing all of these things. And as he records history, he- he's very, very detailed oriented. And that's why we call him actually the father of modern history. So when you read the writings of Herodotus, when you, when you look at the history of the Greek people, this is the beginning of these chronicled battles to where it's like, okay, this is how many elephants we had, and this is how many soldiers we had, and this is how many mounted troops we had. And your Bible tells us these things, not with quite that detail, but it's telling us who these people are, what, who they came from, who they're related to, and, and why, in essence, they're going to do these things. And so he doesn't press on to this victory. And Antiochus the Great, the king of the north, destroys his whole army. We even know where. This happens at the town of Repha in 217 BC. So this is just before Antiochus Epiphanes comes on the scene. This, by the way, is exactly when the first copy of the book of Daniel is dated to. So the events that are described here are actually going to occur after the fact. In other words, there's a few of them uh, that are right within that time frame. Verse 13, notice what it says. For the king of the north will return and muster a greater multitude than the former, and shall certainly come to the end with some years, with a great army and much equipment. So now they're moving into that stage where they're building siege machines and all kinds of battle armaments. They're actually using armored elephants, all of these crazy things. For those of you that read Homer's Iliad, and you realize that you know you have this incredible battle where they they armor in essence elephants and then transport them over the Alps to fight. There's all kinds of crazy things that are going on in the history of the world at this time that had never been seen before. And now in those times, many shall rise up against the kings of the south, and also violent men. For your people shall exalt themselves in the fulfillment of the vision, but they will fall. And so Antiochus the Great, again, the king of the north in 203 BC, raises up this even greater army. He comes against Ptolemy Philippator and his his wife, and they both die. And then um, Ptolemy Epiphanes rises up, the king of the south. He's only now four or five years old, but he becomes king. Realizing the weaknesses that are in Egypt, he makes an alliance with the Egyptians, and they fight together. And so when you look at the history, especially of northern Egypt, uh, the area that's in the Nile River Delta, uh, which also still contains the, the great uh, edifices of the, the civilizations that existed there during the times of the pharaohs. So that would be the pyramids at Giza. That would be uh, the Valley of the Kings. That, that would be uh, all of these great treasures. If you went and you viewed the treasures of Tutankhamun as they were here on display uh, at the Science Center in, in Los Angeles, you would have been looking at history that was well before this date, but the, the Egyptians were still a powerful force to be reckoned with, but now they were taking their power in, in a much different way. They were making political allegiances and alliances with other kings and kingdoms, very specifically the Ptolemies. And so that northern region was largely Greek, and so you can expect to see some influence of the Greek culture in northern Egypt, and you in fact do, including port cities like the port city of Alexandria, which held at one point in time the world's largest library. And in fact, if it were not for the histories of the the library at Alexandria, we wouldn't have what we call the Septuagint copy or the Greek copy of the Old Testament uh, that was translated by 70 Greek scholars uh, we, we wouldn't have the Masoretic text. We wouldn't have all these beautiful textual elements that we're able to use to now look at our modern English Bibles and say, where did we get this stuff from? Well, here's where it came from. It came primarily from Greeks in Northern Africa, specifically in Egypt, 
that cared about chronicling these things and keeping them for us. And so the king of the north shall build a great siege mound and and take a fortified city. The forces of the south shall not withstand him, and even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one will stand against him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. So the Egyptian general, Scopus, uh, mounts a counteroffensive against Antiochus the Great, the king of the north. Uh, they meet, they capture the port city of Sidon, which if you know your geography, the port city of Sidon is in modern-day Lebanon. It's adjacent just slightly north of Haifa in modern-day Israel. And so here's this incredible battle, and they build this giant siege ramp that actually happened. Antiochus turns, turns his attention towards the south, the beautiful land here, The glorious land is none other than the promised land. It was the land of Palestine, uh, as it would be known by uh, the Romans under Hadrian. That's when it got that name. It was not known as Palestine. In ancient history, it was fairly new history that it was called Palestine. So the the Romans, uh, in essence, gave it that name. Verse 17, and he shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom and and upright ones with him, and thus he shall do. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, and she shall not uh, stand with him nor be for him. And at this time, Rome begins to exert its power. You have dueling empires, so Rome's about to come on the scene. Uh, and there are some people in this particular region of history that probably many of you know. One of them might be this particular woman. That would be the great queen Cleopatra and her husband, who ultimately is murdered, Mark Anthony. Uh, This marriage didn't take place until about, uh, I think, it would be like 193 B.C. or so. But Ptolemy's 10 years old in 97, so this is no doubt when he's uh, he's probably a teenager. Uh, Cleopatra is identified here as Zisbesheth Bath, the daughter of women, uh, that's actually an Aramaic idiom, and it means that she was uh, a child that was under the care of women. Antiochus, in an attempt to gain some control, marries into the Egyptian culture so that he has this cross. Uh, this, this is the power grab, if you will, politically. Uh, Cleopatra loved her husband more than she loved her father, and so when Antiochus engaged the Romans in Egypt, uh, Egypt aids Rome. And so now you have the Seleucids and the Ptolemies coming, Ptolemies coming against each other, and you have the Egyptians on the side, in essence, of the Romans. And so ultimately, that's the reason the Romans are able to take what we would call uh, power in the, in the entire Middle East. And after this, verses 18 and 19, he shall turn his face towards the coastlands and take many, but a ruler shall bring reproach against them and an end, and with that reproach removed, he shall turn back on them, and then he shall turn his face towards the fortress of his own land, but he'll stumble and fall and not be found. And so finally, Antiochus the Great turns his attention towards the Mediterranean coastland, the area that was necessary uh, if you were going to defeat the Romans, because the Romans had a very, very uh, healthy navy, as did the Greeks for a period of time. And so the coastlands, the islands that are in the Aegean Sea, uh, these great naval battles happen. Antiochus the Great is finally killed. He builds a temple of Belus near Elismus. And so this, this history that we have of this region uh, is in view in a microcosm here in the book of Daniel in verse 20. And finally for tonight, there shall arise in this place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. That's really important because the glorious kingdom is the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there needs to be someone who rose up and taxed that area of the world. You know exactly who, is, who he is, and that's Antiochus Epiphanes, the, the, final, the final one of the Seleucid rulers whom would desecrate the temple, um, who Jesus would refer to ultimately uh, in, in a minor way and then look forward in a major way towards one who would be like him. So Seleucius Philopater, the king of the north from 187 to uh, 176, the eldest son of the great Antiochus succeeds his father. Uh, he has the unpleasant duty of raising taxes. As he does that, 
Uh, eventually, he becomes a puppet king in the region of Palestine. Uh, he is the one that then ultimately sets up an image of himself in the Jewish temple, uh, causes it slaughters a pig in the, in the same Jewish temple, defiling it, and ultimately it would be the Maccabees that would come and restore the order to the temple. And as that order is restored, the reason that the Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah is not because it coincides with Christian Christmas. It was the time of rededication of the temple because of the desecration of Antiochus Epiphanes. And so you have a little bit of the history of the Greek people and all of these kings and their kingdoms and some of their wives and some of their uh, individual um, deeds that are made known to us. And then again, you would have to read thousands of pages of history uh, to, to get all of the details in there. But there's enough here that you could go through and line by line, you'd find uh, Heliodorus who seized the funds in the temple treasury. Uh, that's recorded actually in the book of Maccabees, by the way. You would find the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes. You would find the desecration of the temple. You would find this final uh, ruler, which would be the fourth Antiochus or Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. And so, so the Seleucids, uh, would finally be mysteriously removed, um, probably um, by a, a Greek cohort, cohort uh, from the south, but ultimately that would pave the way for the Romans to come into the land and seize the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it would stay that way until the time of the one who would be cut off, who we know as Messiah the Prince. Amen? So there you go. Some history from your Bible told in advance uh, by a, a minimum of about 340 years up to a little over 500 years. Uh, and so God gives us these things so that we can know that he knows what's going to happen before it happens and has a plan when it happens. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for the power that it has to transform lives and Lord, we pray that we take this section, and though it's a, a broad swath, a painting of the history of the Greek cultures of the time, uh, just right after Daniel, Lord, we pray uh, that these, these wonderful passages of Scripture that confirm uh, that this, your word, the Bible, came from outside of space and time. It came from someplace other than humans. Uh, Lord, it, it just lets us know that you're actually the author by the Spirit. Uh, we pray that you bless us, Lord, encourage us, and strengthen our walks with you. Uh, thank you for telling us these things in advance so that we can know that you know. We bless you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.